1: I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high profile public figures. So I'm here with uh, my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good morning, Ricky.
0: Good morning. Happy holidays, everyone. How is it going this morning? The wind has died down where I am, so it is going great.
1: Uh, that's good. So, Ricky, I think uh, we're going to go over some uh, some news items and current events. We'll do a little bit of a wrap-up of the latest developments left over from the election. And then, of course, my interview coming up with, uh, with the very prominent attorney and activist, Jake Bernazian. You know, I'm just really pleased to um sort of have him on the show i've been wanting to do that for a while and i finally got to so uh, we'll do that coming up but you know let's sort of do a a briefing on you know what happens at least the the bigger items And some local democrats got to keep the senate but uh they lost the house and uh, so speaker pelosi is no longer the majority leader and uh in la of course um Karen Bass uh, is the decided, voted mayor, uh, our new mayor. Also, my friend and West Hollywood Council member, uh, Lindsay Horvath, uh, is now a member of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Um, Lindsay's been on the show uh, several times and so has uh, now mayor, (laughs) Karen Bass, as well. So what do you think about that?
0: I just want to say congratulations to Lindsay. Yes, she has been on the show many times, and she is just a good person. Yes. She is she is a person that you want at the forefront of all this mush-mash in terms of LA. This is an LA-based radio show, and it would be great if people dug into her a little more and, and to see what I'm talking about, maybe go back into the KPFK archives and Listen to some of those Lindsay Horvath interviews. She's a great person, and she she stands up for what she believes in.
1: Absolutely, you know, social justice and equality have been at the forefront of Lindsay's career uh, as a council member, and before that, and uh, now as a LA County uh, supervisor. You know, and and some people don't realize how powerful the LA County Board of Supervisors is. Um, the five people who uh, make up the board, uh, really get to have the last say in a lot of uh, decisions, especially having to do with budgets. So, And then, Ricky, you were telling me something about uh, Mayor Bass and the vote that she received,
0: like a historic number, right? Yes, Karen Bass has received the most votes in Los Angeles history in wow. a mayor- in a mayoral race. That's incredible.
1: That's incredible. It's good to hear that people are you know, people are active and voting uh, and not being, uh, you know, thinking someone else is going to do it. It was was close. It was close.
0: Yeah, because at this point, I think it's easy to take a a cynical approach when it comes to the people that are leading this country. And because sometimes you just sit back and you feel like not a lot is getting done, regardless of who's in office, uh, regardless of where you live. So to hear about a number like this and people got out and did their civic duty, it's uh, really cool to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: um, Ricky, we should probably tell everyone listening that uh, the Blonde Post with Vic is going to a new time slot. Uh, We're excited about that because uh, there are more people awake at 8 a.m. than 6 a.m., Uh, We hope that you continue listening to us. Um, So in the next week or two, uh, the Blonde Post with Vic will have uh, premiered at the the 8 o'clock hour. It's a part of a sort of a a news magazine uh, thing that KPFK is doing where all 8 a.m. shows throughout the week will have uh, sort of a wake up with us, uh, wake up everybody in quotes, uh, kind of a theme. So uh, just uh, stay tuned for for news and uh, alerts about when the change happens, and we'll let you know. And uh, as I said, the interview coming up is with uh, Jake Bornazian. It's, it's a really exciting one. I've been waiting for a while uh, to do this. Um, Jake is a prominent attorney. Uh, based in Washington, D.C., and is an activist with the Knights of Vartan, which is an Armenian-American fraternal service and philanthropy organization. Um, Jake has been a longtime supporter of the Independent Republic of Artsakh and the Republic of Armenia and has several ongoing humanitarian projects there. So stay tuned.
0: People are really going to really enjoy the interview with Jake and him being a prominent attorney. He it's cool because he can shed light on a, on a lot of different aspects regarding that genocide.
1: Absolutely. He's, uh, he's very in tune. He's a politica also. And, uh, yeah, he's definitely an expert about what's happened, what's happening now. Um, so I talk, uh, in detail about all of this. Uh, it's a very interesting, uh, interview.
0: So stay tuned for that. Um, Thank you, Ricky, as always. Yes, and real quick, I just want to remind people that KPFK is an independent news organization. We rely on listener donations. And if you fill in up for it, please check out the website, kpfk.org. You can donate there. Anything is more than appreciated. We really appreciate your help. And if you miss uh, the entire show, Uh, you can always go to the KPFK website and check out the archives. Good point, Ricky. Uh, Two good points,
1: actually. The uh, audio archives on KPFK's website, kpfk.org. You can just go down to the Blunt Post and uh, listen to all the sort of past shows. And Ricky made a really good point about us being independent and relying on our listeners. And I just want to add that, uh, you know, we know that you are uh, very supportive of this station and our mission uh, and also just to remind you that uh, whatever you donate now you'll be able to use on your taxes as a tax write-off um, come January uh, to April when you're doing your taxes um, so uh, just sort of keep that in mind
0: and real quick I'm just gonna be blunt how about yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna be blunt for a second yes, please our listeners kick ass seriously like yeah. You know, they listen, they enjoy the variety of shows KPFK has to offer, and they donate. You know, whether it's $10, $100, or $1,000, they kick ass. They help us because they know what KPFK is about. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you all.
1: Well said, Ricky. I like that. Um, Yes, thank you all. And uh, stay tuned uh, for my interview with Jake Ornazian. The Blunt Post with Vic. Jake Bournazian is a prominent attorney based in Washington, D.C., and an activist with the Knights of Vartan, an Armenian-American fraternal service and philanthropy organization. Jake has been a longtime supporter of the Independent Republic of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, the Republic of Armenia, and has several ongoing humanitarian projects there. Good morning, Jake. Uh, Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing
2: well. Doing well this morning.
1: Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, being on the show. Uh, you and I have known each other for a while now. Uh, you are definitely uh, an exceptional expert in um, many areas, but we're here to uh, talk about primarily about um, what I call the the 2020 Azerbaijan's and Turkey's genocide, genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing of the. Autonomous uh, Independent Republic of Artsakh, also known by its former Soviet name, nagorno karabakh and the massacre of 5,000-plus Armenians, as well as the ongoing uh, campaigns of hate, violence, and disinformation that nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey have unleashed on the Armenians, as well as uh, Republic of Armenia, um, which has created a very dangerous situation for them, for the Armenians, uh, as you and I are talking right now. So uh, um, I, I let's start, just go right into it. Tell me about your assessment or your perspective of what happened in 2020 and why it happened.
2: Well, the war broke out, initiated by uh, Azerbaijan's uh, attacks, and it continued throughout uh, this five-week stretch. And the from the Armenian side, uh, you know, from what I observed and in, in talking with villagers, there seemed to be a little bit, uh, a, a coordination problem with the, the defense forces. The reserves were under a separate command from the um, the regulars, regular army forces, and then also you had the uh, Artsakh armed forces under the command of the uh, Armenian generals. And and there's also what you have with the defense minister of Artsakh being the same as the commander in chief, so he's wearing two hats. And that there's a conflict of interest there when your president uh, orders you to attack. But your commanding general in Armenia orders you to uh, hold or, or or retreat. So we saw that that causing some problems during the uh, the war itself, and then at the end, I think the uh, from everyone I was uh, in touch with, they were very much committed to uh, defending that territory and uh, continuing. Uh, to uh, uh, re- try to regain that, recapture the land. The Azerbaijan had only captured 25% of uh, the Republic of Artsakh at the time uh, that they decided that the ceasefire, November 10th. And in that, it, it was just a heartbreak for the villagers because they uh, ended up giving up 80% of their land and 99% of their water resources. And the, the I think the the people were really just left uh, befuddled and and, uh, and, and shocked uh, at the suddenness, and especially after uh, a 30-year effort of uh, not only standing up for their, in- but in fighting for their independence. So that was a really difficult outcome for them to accept in, in, in the course of that five-week war.
1: Yeah, and you, as you mentioned, uh... There, there. Uh, I would say what eighty percent of Artsakh is now occupied by Azerbaijan, and most importantly, the water resources. And Artsakh is surrounded by Azerbaijani troops, and it only has one route out to Armenia proper, um, which is it's very volatile and it's a uh, sort of monitored by both Azerbaijani and Russian troops, and you know this this so-called ceasefire that happened in november 9th when russia uh, brokered it it was it was there was an attempt by the us and france to broker it first and then uh, they didn't succeed uh, or i should say it wasn't like that they didn't succeed it's just azerbaijan wouldn't stop i mean they would break the ceasefire and just keep killing And so when Putin stepped in, uh, we know about the collusion of Putin and and Aliyev, Azerbaijan's president. Um, The ceasefire was signed, which was just very damaging to Armenia and Artsakh and and all those interests. But it was, aside from being beneficial for Azerbaijan, it was beneficial for Russia, for Putin, because Putin got to finally have his footsteps in the South Caucasus, to monitor the flow of oil and gas and water resources, you know, be stationed right by the Iranian border uh, and just sort of be in an area that uh, it never had been before. And that's where we're at now, that there are Russian troops um, stationed there. What's your take on that?
2: Well, it's that situation is kind of um, transformed, I'd say in the last 20 months. Because what started off as a, a ceasefire in the Latching Corridor would have been the connecting pipeline for Artsakh to um, have any access to Armenia or uh, I- anything outside of Azerbaijan. That got removed in this past five months. Right. And so now with the new road, they call it the new road, that road uh, is, is going it, it's straight through Azerbaijan territory whereas the Lachin Corridor was pretty much treated as still uh, a sovereign Armenian territory. It was Armenian land, there was uh, the, uh, Armenian villages there. And so to attack the Lachin Corridor would have been um, compromising the the, the Armenian uh, inhabitants and, and the sovereignty of that two and a half kilometers on the left and right of the road. So now you got a new road um, that's... Controlled, It's in Azerbaijani territory, so if violence and war breaks out, uh, nobody's getting out of Artsakh uh, without <laughs> without the approval or, or or of Azerbaijan. The Russian troops are are there, but you only have two thousand five hundred Russian troops, so they're a peacekeeping force, but it's not any kind of offensive or military deterrence. Because if Azerbaijan was to do a blitzkrieg attack, with you know, say 30,000 troops coming across the border, with a full drone, a blitzkrieg, they they have a a, a good advantage over the Russians. They so I think been there's more of a defensive
1: force. I mean, you know, we've seen all the attacks that have happened, and Russians haven't really done anything. But Azerbaijan just keeps attacking and killing people around the borders, and we haven't seen yes
2: And. And I think in Bedzor was a good example on August 4th, because there was a Russian base and it was kind of an unwritten uh, set of actions that Azerbaijan was attacking Armenian and shooting on Armenian uh, inhabitants and soldiers, but they were staying away from the Russians. But on August 4th and 3rd, they came out with a full blitzkrieg on Bedzor using heavy artillery and kamikaze drones. And that was a test on the resolve of the Russians. On whether they're in there for the fight or they're just going to see how it goes, and after a few days, uh, Russia capitulated and and gave Bedzor and, and vacated that military base. So that was a that was a tough setback for um, the security analysts saying, "Oh, Russia's there to protect them," because right after that, that gave the green light for uh, Azerbaijan to do its uh, September thirteenth attack on Armenia. Basically, getting a, a a nod that there wouldn't be any negative repercussions coming from it. So, the presence of Russia is is an important factor that's keeping the peace and actually keeping the people in Artsakh alive. And I think there's what the the, the uncertainty is is the commitment of the Russians on standing behind their pledge to protect the Armenians.
1: Right especially now that uh, Russia itself is um, reoccupied with in, the Ukrainian you war know, with, uh, with Ukraine, uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine. Uh, if you're just joining in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with attorney, activist and humanitarian Jake Bournazian. And we are discussing uh, geopolitics, um, world politics, the conflicts that are happening, specifically Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, attacks on the Republic of Artsakh, as well as Armenia and the situation there. So in September, as you said, Armenia itself as a sovereign nation was attacked by Azerbaijan, which prompted uh, Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi to take a trip to Armenia and to declare her support and say that uh, this was an illegal attack, and the United States will stand behind Armenia on this, which, uh, of course, it pissed off Azerbaijan and Aliyev and such. You know, we've talked about this, and, and you know that, you know, my film talks about this um, sort of thoroughly. But um, talk about why uh, Aliyev, who is known to be, to the world, to be an authoritarian dictator. Is able to get away with so much um, in the in the sort of the context of the international community, uh, all the major powers, agencies, and such.
2: Yeah. And so, are you commenting on? Yeah,
1: I just the want to hear your hypocrisy opinion, your of the outcome, or, or? As, as to how could someone get away with so much? I mean, I feel like um, you know the short answer is oil and gas. And if he didn't have oil and gas, he'd be treated like Saddam Hussein. But I, I think mm-hmm. you probably have a much more eloquent answer to that.
2: Yeah, no, there's um, what they, I, I hate the phrase, but the, you see it uh, used by the political pundits that the geopolitics of the region are uh, dictating uh, U.S. foreign policy position and the State Department response. And it's, it's true that the geopolitics of the situation are dictating it, and, and you pointed out it happens to be oil and gas, um, but that's um, what, what's leading up here is the same exact mistake that we saw happen a uh, hundred years ago in the twentieth century, in which you know the world powers knew that the uh, Armenian genocide of nineteen fifteen was a terrible crime, but because of um, the way they wanted to divvy up oil interests in 1919 and the American Petroleum Institute's lobbying efforts, they decided to look the other way and not take action. Uh, It's not like they condoned a a mass murder. They just decided not to take action because they just wanted to strike uh, oil concessions. And and we saw this again in in the mid-30s when the United States and when Hitler came to the United States and said, give me arms, I'll go fight the Bolsheviks. And Ford Motor Company went over there and was building the trucks. And uh, General Motors went over, formed Opel uh, Motors, and was building them tanks. And then Hitler turns around and he says to Russia and says, give me weapons, I'll go attack Europe and destabilize them for um, a fascist-communist alliance. And they did. And you see that playing out today where, you know, United States looks the other way on what Turkey's behavior is. They looked the other way during the Iraq war and they're looking the other way now because they want them to work, use their destabilizing factor. And, and Turkey's very, very skillful in how they uh, uh, you know, manipulate their foreign policy because they're doing the same thing Hitler did uh, with the, the backdrop of mass murdering an ethnic group. Turkey goes to the United States and says, give me your best weapons. I'll go fight Russia and give them a hard time. And then he turns right around and Erdogan tells Russia, Putin, give me some weapons. Give me your best weapons and I'll go attack Greece and destabilize NATO for you. And, And it's almost like 1938, 39, where the United States was watching Hitler committing these atrocities. And it was like, Oh, geez, I really wish you wouldn't go into Poland, Czechoslovakia. And and Stalin was reaching out to Roosevelt for an alliance. And they're like, nah, we'd rather still support Hitler than do an alliance with the Bolsheviks. And you see that right now in 2022. The United States sees what Azerbaijan did. They know it was criminal. They know it was a a mass murder and uh, with genocidal intent. And they're on the edge. They're on the edge, just like the United States in 1939. They're they're still sticking with Azerbaijan, but they don't like what they see, but it's not enough. It doesn't hurt bad enough for them to do anything about it. And that's the sad uh, analysis that these so-called smarty pants in the State Department think they got it all figured out for regime change or controlling geopolitics. And what they end up doing with their incompetence is uh, leading uh, not only a, a mass murder here in Artsakh, but a, a spiraling um, domino effect of genocides across the uh, all continents in this world. Just like 13 genocides flowed across uh, uh, the world after the Armenian Genocide in the 20th century, and the world had to stand up in 48 right. and say, we need a United Nations because your world powers are incompetent of stopping this crime. We're going to see the same thing. If they're not able to um, preserve peace and stop genocide in Artsakh, you're going to see the same model unfold in Myanmar, in Nigeria, in Congo, and even in El Salvador, across uh, in every continent. These hotbeds are sitting there. Yemen and even even in Europe with Bosnia and, you know, nothing's settled. Well, how many so, how
1: many more groups of people does Erdogan have to slaughter before they do anything? I mean, Turkish President uh, Erdogan has been killing um, Syrians, Kurdish, Yazidis, yeah. Assyrians, Armenians, and it goes on and on. Uh, Racial already,
2: purification.
1: Yeah. Yep. And he's even tried uh, penetrating in uh, Libya and Yemen. Uh, and uh, he just uh, seems to be like this runaway train bully, like his, uh, little brother. <laughs> and I quote Aliyev <laughs> of Azerbaijan. Let me, um, you know, you made some, uh, some good points and which, which partly answers my next question, but I think you can elaborate on this, which is why should the, why should the average American care? Um, about what's happening halfway around the world, to Artsakh, to Armenia, um, and this, the chaos. I think it's you can call it a chaos that uh, is prevailed in in that region.
2: Because once again, the American public uh, is uh, faced with uh, uh, the reality that civilization really has not advanced. Technology has advanced. And technology has no morals or bounds. And so Americans need to pay attention to this because whichever way it goes down, uh, if, if peace is preserved, and you're going to see uh, a, a couple decades, uh, at least a generation growing up with peace across the planet. If, if, if genocide breaks out and is completed, uh, now you're going to see millions of people perish It may not be inside the United States; it's going to be all around the United States. But it's going to send uh, innocent millions of innocent people are going to die, and it's mainly because the United States never really came to any grips of uh, facing its own history on the genocide it committed against the Native Americans. So the only reason why genocide isn't going to break out is we've already polished off the Native Americans. No need, but it's going to have a major impact. Uh, because America has, it's the only country in the world that has every country represented inside it. Within. You got all 190 country citizens right here in America, and they're living peacefully in a tolerant society under a rule of law. So it's the United States that, if they can um, you pay attention to this, be the leading example for the rest of the world on tolerance. And that's the message of the 21st century: that the, the, the technology has shown us how we can mass murder human beings more efficiently than we have ever done in the history of mankind. You know, we 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 started the 20th century, you know, com, you know, feeling sorry for the Armenian genocide, but we finished the 20 20th century murdering a million Rwandans, actually Tutsis. Within 40 days, we did it so efficiently faster than ever before. And we see now that in the 21st century, we're not only able to do it faster and better, we can do it entirely by machine. We don't even need human beings chasing them down on the field with a rifle. The drones, the drones, the the precision artillery with the cluster bombs, with the phosphorus bombs, you never even have to send your troops in and you can annihilate. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people in the cities. Which is what Azerbaijan
1: did in Artsaf. Exactly.
2: And that's the model to right. use these new 21st century weapons and machinery to do the dirty work. And you now that's so it makes it even scarier that it's easier to commit genocide today, even uh, than it was 100 years ago. And we, we've been living with the uh, genocide treaty from, since 1948.
1: Uh, If you're just joining in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you're listening to my interview with attorney, activist, and humanitarian, Jake Burnazian. And we are discussing uh, geopolitics, um, world politics, um, the conflicts that are happening, specifically uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, attacks on the Republic of Artsakh, as well as Armenia and the situation there. Jake, uh, this brings me to my, uh, you know, in my film, Motherland, I, I talk about this, my shock and disappointment that the attack on Arsa happened under uh, President Trump's watch. And we, we know that nothing like that happens without the knowledge of the world's most powerful person, and also secretary pompeo who uh, leading up to the attack he was waiving many laws to allow weapon sales to azerbaijan and so we you know trump you know a a admitted friend of erdogan who had many conflicts of interest including two towers in istanbul lots of business interests etc we we sort of we know what happened there and um and such. But then I was double disappointed when as a as a progressive Democrat and, uh, you know, a registered Democrat who voted for President Biden, he has for two years waived Section 907 of the Freedom Act, um, which which prevents the United States from giving any kind of military aid to Azerbaijan, uh, where it will be used for a uh, killing of people. And yet President Biden has waived Section 907 two years in a row so far, giving 100 million to this rogue nation of Azerbaijan, which, by the way, doesn't need any aid from anyone. It has billions and billions in oil revenue. And this is taxpayer money. So my my taxes and your taxes are paying for Azerbaijan to kill Armenians. And this is happening right now in real time. With the Biden administration and Secretary Pompeo, um, who you know also is part of the waiving of Section Nine Hundred Seven, um, and uh, President Biden is yet to say a word about what happened two years ago, and Secretary Pompeo has played toxic both sideism and false balance, um, a very double standard, uh, considering the world and U.S.'s reaction to Ukraine, rightfully so, but why couldn't that same uh, ethical behavior be applied to the Armenians? But Secretary, Pump, uh, Secretary Blinken has just played both sidesism and continues to do so. And uh, when a video surfaced where uh, Azerbaijani troops had captured six Armenian uh, soldiers, they were prisoners of war, and they shoot them execution style. And all Secretary Pompeo had to say was, uh, and I quote, deep concern. So he went from complete both sides to just deep concern, which is, you know, it's just insulting. Yeah, talk to me about that and what you think about sort of that language and that sort of lack of reaction.
2: I think Section 907 is uh, a good example of the limitations of our Congress. In trying to be an instrument for um, international peace, they had it well thought out. It was well targeted, but here again, the executive branch, the the decision was already made that they were going to support this dictatorial regime. Even in you know straight questioning of State Department officials uh, in in hearings in, in the Senate, they they had the audacity to try to justify the waiver of 907 that these weren't really military faces uh, 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 of equipment. They were given this equipment defensive. It was defensive military equipment mm-hmm. so that they could uh, uh, interdict Iranian drug trafficking and have uh, some defensive capability against Iran. Nothing to do with Armenia. Um, but then when you looked at the list of weapons, it wasn't just defensive it was also offensive. So they were blatantly ignoring the facts um, in, in the executive branch and uh, pushing forward their own agenda without, you know, even, you know, any kind of support from Congress on that. Um, this is sort of the kind of the inside government versus the, uh, um, the, the government that we see on the exterior where we vote for our elected representatives. You know, it's where the lobbyists in an in, in industrial complex meet with their National Security Council folks. And, and, you know, and this is how the president can play a cue. When the war broke out September 27th, President Trump canceled every national security weekly briefing starting on October 2nd. <laughs> Just didn't want to hear any briefings about what was going on in the world straight through the election, and so here the war is going on for the entire month of October, and he's washed his hands. There's, there's no, there's not even a national security briefing on any uh, on this conflict or any others, and 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 Biden plays the same game because if you don't know, you can't be held responsible for all those horrible bad facts. And dead bodies that line up from the uh, actions of uh, uh, the war that Azerbaijan implemented, and and, well, and, and Biden, Biden's doing the same thing.
1: Well, Biden, and, Biden better start caring because his legacy will be remembered as Biden's Armenian genocide because that's exactly what's happening, and it's happening not only in his watch, but it's his facilitating it. When you when right. you when you do what your you
2: silence do, is acceptance.
1: And yes, not only that, that's but right. you are giving 100 million to Azerbaijan, which aids in killing Armenians. You're facilitating another genocide. So let's just be clear about that. Let's get blunt. <laughs> I'm not going to hold it back <laughs> or filter it. It is. It's exactly just that. President Biden and Secretary Blinken. It's just weird that we're here again. You know, every every time there's a genocide, whether it's the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, Rwanda, uh, Cambodia, Chile. Um, darfur we we sort of say how could this have happened we should have done this uh going forward we need to do that but then it happens again and people are sort of just left without uh, it, you know any kind of a substantial help
2: it's even i think worse in this century than when we analyzed genocides in the mm-hmm. in the pa- in the 20th century uh, I was just in Artsakh last month, and the one difference I noticed from when I was there six months ago in March was the degree uh, of um, censorship and um, basically internet surveillance that uh, uh, blankets this this countryside. Um, you really can't you can't even talk openly. Uh, you can't even converse uh, through email. Everything is being monitored or jammed uh, when they, you know, whenever they want to cut off communications, and so people don't. Or people are switching to basically um, texting, getting around, and so you, you feel like you're in communist China that you got to watch what you, you, uh, what you key in on your cell phone um, and and everything being going on. And so when I asked other humanitarian workers, "Do you see this going on in Congo?" Do you see this going on in Myanmar? And they said, yes. This is a newer tactic in 21st century genocide is that you muzzle, um, you you monitor communications and you can muzzle the thoughts or at least target these people that are going to be troublemakers from the inception. And so you didn't see this kind of control um, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. But now this gets... This is like frosting on the cake to the, to the oppressors. They not only do occupying and, and every other evil thing, cutting off gas and everything, but now they've got the uh, uh, information technology to strangle these societies. I'm
1: seeing some of that too. I mean, for the last two years, um, on a daily basis, literally, They try to crash uh, my publication's website, the Blunt Post. I get notifications that uh, they're trying to log in. Uh, Sometimes my notification says uh, 266 attempts in 10 minutes, you know, and it's like one of those massive warnings. They try to log into my uh, social media. They try to get me suspended on Twitter. And uh, recently uh, when I interviewed an Azerbaijani dissident and whistleblower, One of their TV networks put um, my picture with the picture of Ilgar Hadjiev, and they wrote this bleep about it. And this is an Instagram account that has 1.6 million followers. So, you know, they 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 use all these types of tactics. Of course, I've gotten I've gotten uh, threats of violence and all kinds of other things uh through social media and dms and such so they're they're doing it to armenians of Artsakh. they're doing it to armenians period but also you know stretching all over the place Uh, of course they're less powerful in the u.s but they attempt to do this to threaten you to intimidate you and hopefully uh, or they hope that
2: they can shut you up so that's right facebook is like a death sentence whatever you put on facebook that's basically um Writing your own death sentence for uh, for, for retribution. So, um, and and so these these were normal social mechanisms that people used to uh, communicate with one another.
1: Yeah, well, and, you mean that sentence if if Armenians of Artsakh do it,
2: right? Correct. Yeah, in, in Artsakh. Yeah. yeah. To give you an example, three uh, there was six students that got accepted to uh, a French university on a scholarship, and they are so happy and overjoyed. They put it on their Facebook page that they got accepted to the school in Paris, and they were, you know, have, have a new life waiting for them. And within three weeks, they got rejection letters. They got it all got rescinded, and obviously uh, that got picked up. Azerbaijan complained uh, to France, and they withdrew the uh, scholarships of those six what students. Was the, so it's like,
1: what was the justification of the French school for declining them?
2: They uh, basically. They didn't give a, a, a strong reason. It was like two-sentence letters just saying uh, been a, a change and your uh, scholarship's been withdrawn. They didn't say it was rejected. It was withdrawn. Had they never posted on Facebook, those kids would be in school today in France. And so uh, this is the wow. kind of um, scare retribution, like I said, is, is going on.
1: Which, which yeah. goes to show how many of the i mean we 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 have some numbers of the billions and billions in oil and gas revenue goes into azerbaijan government's lobbying budget and budget of um reputation laundering and image laundering and spreading lies and propaganda and disinformation throughout the world Um, these um, these farce of press trips that they uh they organize where they take Um, otherwise reputable journalists to Azerbaijan they wine and dine them and impress them with caviar diplomacy and then they ask them to write um, basically repeat their propaganda Um, and some of them do and some of them are you know uh, big names because uh, you know they get impressed with uh, with all this um, five-star service and uh, the very filtered and curated information that they're given, which is mostly just BS and uh, fiction. Um, So You
2: you, you touch on a point and and you're correct. They've been very effective in their social media and in in, in putting forth their propaganda campaign, but it's not just like it happened overnight. They have been quietly building uh, their platform for the last 20 years, both Turkey and Azerbaijan, they have put in study abroad programs in about every major uh, university across America, from wow. California to Virginia. You can look it up. You got a study abroad program, and so these um, academics that are bought off and, and you know as Turkophile uh, propagandists have been in place. You even have you know, the, the deans of the international relations and conflict resolution departments, ahead, you know, as, as, as Turkish appointees. So when this war broke out and everything you're seeing now, they're basically utilizing this infrastructure across yeah. the United States. And, and, and so it's, um, it's effective, but it's been supported by a long-term strategy of um, cultivating public relations in the most favorable light and no. suppressing all of the dirty laundry. And one should uh, mention
1: uh, Azerbaijan has also done this greatly in the UK where they're sort fast. of, it's, it's like their European epicenter, uh, the UK, where, you know, we, we learned from the Panama papers that uh, Azerbaijan president Aliyev has 900, 900 million pounds invested just in the UK alone. This is his personal wealth. This is not Azerbaijan wealth. This is his personal wealth. So one has the question where does that money come from, if not from the oil and gas revenue uh, that should that should go to the people. And then Turkey has also done this uh, effectively throughout Europe, but even uh, more importantly in Germany, where um, it's used its uh, leverage power to uh, affect um, uh, German foreign policy. Uh, If you're just joining in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with attorney, activist, and humanitarian, Jake Bournazian, and we are discussing uh, geopolitics, um, world politics, the conflicts that are happening, specifically Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, attacks on the Republic of Artsakh, as well as Armenia and the situation there. So Jake, before we go, let's get into the sort of solution. I'm interested to know you know if there's any any good news coming and or what what do you think some solutions some at least short-term solutions? We know this, the long-term solutions, right? because it's been there forever, which is prevent genocides and uh, don't play politics with when uh, the lives of human beings are at stake. But what are some short-term things? That we are seeing that maybe you know maybe there's hope there or you would just like to see.
2: Well, I think what the the positive outcomes in in direction that I saw last month was very encouraging. In inside Artsakh, the the country is is healing from the war, and and it's starting to develop again. It, it's amazing on the resilience of these people. The birth rate is almost twice that of Armenia's in the first uh, seven months they had like 131% birth rate. Uh, these people are, you know, having marriages, they're, they're, they're carrying on with their life. And and it's always been said, if you want to be strong uh, militarily or as a country, first be strong economically, and then you can be a strong country. And I think Artsakh is doing a great job of that. They've, um, really put forward uh, an, an aggressive set of priorities where they want to uh, sectors in their economy, they want to develop uh, as from a comprehensive standpoint, health, education, and uh, agriculture. Like I mentioned, um, you know, losing 80% of the land and 99% of the water, they had to switch from a, a primarily livestock-based agricultural economy to a plant-based, and that doesn't you can't do that in one or two years. But what they've put in place is uh, it, with the subsidies for greenhouse uh, with um, for construction and also for uh, greenhouse uh, farming technique education is is a big plus and it's having some real positive results. Food production is picking up from that greenhouse uh, production, which will make them you know uh, internally strong and not less less dependent on imported for foods and pricing. Uh, I think. In the end, uh, Artsakh may be the winner compared to Armenia, even though it's suffered a great deal from this war. It's um you know, with with Russia's backing, uh and basically providing uh, continuing to provide the structure for this country to develop under, it's got the fundamentals, economic fundamentals in place, and the people have the desire to uh to rebuild that uh, I think is. It not only is is the promise and hope for Artsakh, it really is their greatest asset. I, I was talking to some Europeans that had come in for some an assessment, and they said, "You know, you're landlocked. You don't have any water. You're just surrounded with these rocky mountains. Uh, forget tourism. You know, your your best resource is your people. And 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 everyone talks about how the Artsakh people are unique." They're very, they're a little bit different culturally from the uh, the people in Armenia, but they are a, a real special breed of, of, of folks. And that's the new hope for Artsa. Um, that's Art good song. to
1: hear. I really like that. Fantastic. I'm glad we sort of covered the silver lining, at least if if one can say that. Uh, if you're just joining in, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM, I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with attorney, activist, and humanitarian Jake Bournazian, and we are discussing uh, geopolitics, um, world politics, the conflicts that are happening, specifically Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, attacks on the Republic of Artsakh, as well as Armenia and the situation there. Anything else you want to add, Jake? Any, um, you know. Um, I, I should mention this that you are a longtime uh, active member of the Knights of Vartan, uh, one of the most uh, respected, uh, prominent Armenian American organizations in the US since 1916, with lodges. Throughout the nation, and you are a leader um, within the organization. And I've personally seen your work and all that you do for for so many people. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Knights of Vartan and your sort of your involvement?
2: Yeah, sure. Because it was through the Knights of Vartan that brought me to Artsakh uh, three years ago. Uh, Knights of Vartan is a uh, you know you know nonprofit um, organization dedicated to serving. Uh, not only the, the Armenian church and Armenian people, but for advancing the principles of universal tolerance. And, and it's driven by two principles of self-sacrifice and self-service and dedication to the people. And when you look at, you know, nature and life, the rivers, the waters flow through the rivers, but the rivers don't drink their own water. And the trees open up and blossom when the sun rises but they don't, they don't eat their own fruit because in the law of nature, they already know that to live your life for others is the basic premise of, uh, of the law of nature. No matter how difficult life is, uh you, you you still are there to live your life for others. And in the Knights of our time embodies that. It really challenges you to step up and and, 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 and endure that. Because not every person, not every lay person is cut out for that kind of work, but it, it'll test you and, and push you to realize that if you really want to experience the true joy and happiness of life, you experience it uh, at a much higher level when you're uplifting and helping and serving others than just taking care of yourself. Absolutely. And that that was the kind of the, the gift of, of being with the Knights of Vartan organization uh, that really allowed me to get over there to Artsakh and do this kind of humanitarian work.
1: Wow. Well said. That was, that was awesome. Anything you want to add, Jake, before we go?
2: No, that's, uh, that's it. Thanks.
1: Well, thank you for being on the show, for your wisdom, your experience, your, uh, your truth and your message of hope. And uh, we will chat again soon.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you. So that was my uh, interview with Jake Bernazian. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you, Jake, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning, uh, your insight, your experience, your, your strength, your hope. Uh, hope to have you on the show again. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VicGerami. At V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you.
0: The Blunt Post with
1: Vic.